my hypothesis was, what if I put the same level of passion towards giving as I do to achieving? And what if I just push them at the same time in the same envelope and kind of try to keep them a little bit more balanced? What would life look like? Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you're here from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Jamie Bianchini's motto is live big, give big. By following this simple credo, he and a partner launched a tandem bike expedition called Peace Peddlers. Their original mission was simple, ride around the world and invite perfect strangers to hop onto the back seat and pedal along, no strings attached. But soon he realized that many of his passengers needed more than just a bike ride. The more he listened to their stories, the more his mission with Peace Peddlers began to evolve. By the time the expedition ended in 2010, he managed to help build a school for AIDS orphans in Uganda, bring clean water to small villages in Bolivia, and launch more than a dozen other grassroots charities and other projects all over the globe. But Jamie's journey didn't begin on a bicycle in Africa or Asia or South America. It began in the California Bay Area in a town called Burlingame. He was an ambitious kid and very entrepreneurial from a young age. He always had a paper route, he opened lemonade stands, and he dominated the Christmas sales competition at his Catholic elementary and middle schools. Even in high school, he was always working on some sort of enterprise. As I got older, I definitely had ambitions. I was always starting little small things. I would organize ski trips and make a couple extra dollars organizing things. And But I knew when I finally started looking at colleges and getting into colleges, I knew I, at first I wanted to, to, at one point I wanted to be a, a pediatric person. Then I realized how long I had to be in college and I didn't want to go into doc, be a doctor for that much time. I wanted to go out and play more. So I changed to electrical engineering. I got accepted to USC in electrical engineering. Then I realized how long I'd have to sit in the lab. So then I went down to business, which I figured it's good to just learn business. I could always hire engineers. So I went into business and then eventually found the entrepreneur program at USC and just followed the path of learning what it takes to supposedly learning what it takes to, to run businesses and start businesses. It didn't really help that much because I ended up going bankrupt five years out of college and driving myself to the ground. But there were some foundational things I know I'll take with me. So what did you learn in college studying entrepreneurship that was different than what you had learned from your father? One thing I learned was lifestyle. You know, my, my teacher at University of Southern California, his name was Mac Davis, great teacher. And he had this talk called the lifestyle talk where he talked talking about, you know, creating a business to help you be able to live a lifestyle. 
And my dad didn't really live a lifestyle, very good lifestyle because he worked really hard. But he, when he did need to take a day off, he'll do it. But he worked super hard and the business was his life. And that was, to me, that's not a lifestyle. So what I learned different was that you can build a business around the lifestyle that you want to have. And so that was what I aspired to do. And that's still what I do to this day is try to build my companies and build ventures that are impactful now because I like more social impact related ventures now. A crucial part of Jamie's story occurred during his final semester in college. His mother's work as a flight attendant had always offered her family cheap airfare around the world. But just a few months before graduation, she told him that his travel benefits would expire once he finished college. So he started traveling every chance he got. Every weekend, he'd fly somewhere new and backpack around, crashing at hostels or on couches. He made a habit of seeking out and interviewing fellow travelers. Actually, he asked them one specific question. If you could go back and be 22 again, what would you do differently? Jamie, of course, was 22 at the time. He was surprised by the answers he got. These middle-aged travelers all told him they regretted rushing into too many commitments too early in life. Those interviews would ultimately have a major impact on how Jamie looked at the world. My first job out of college was scrubbing toilets and serving beer to backpackers in Switzerland. Working there and seeing what the ins and outs of a hospitality venture from staffing to, you know, ordering an inventory again and all these different things. I I didn't want to do it. Not at 22. I just wanted to go play. And then I went off and started a Harley-Davidson import business into Switzerland while working at a ski resort and skiing every day. So I, you know, I was always doing ventures, but trying to have fun at the same time. Putting the lifestyle into it that you didn't see your father have. Yeah, yeah. He may have been having fun, but he wasn't necessarily successful. The importing business failed, and by 1999, after a few more money-losing ventures, he was back in the U.S. and he was bankrupt. Now's a good time to mention another important character in this story. Jamie had met Garrett Hampton while at USC. Two became fast friends sharing the love of mountain biking. When Jamie returned to the U.S., the two began working on a plan to live their dream and pedal across the globe. They figured they both needed to save around $50,000 to get started, and they gave themselves two and a half years to get the cash together. Jamie and Garrett knew that their trip had to be about more than just riding best trails in the world. Their venture had to mean something. So uh, a lot of people just have fears of different languages and cultures and food and illnesses and all these fears that keep them from going out and connecting with other humans outside of their little bubble that they live in. And it's a shame because there's some really amazing, authentic human experiences that I don't think people should miss in this journey we have of life. Even though Jamie and Garrick were putting money away from their day jobs, they knew they needed to find more resources of capital. So Jamie embarked on a campaign to find as many corporate sponsors as he could. He reached out to hundreds of bicycle equipment manufacturers and outdoor gear brands, hoping to sell them on the idea of riding for peace. Rejections came fast and often, but he kept asking. Finally, Jamie got his first yes from his own employer, the founder and the CEO of InPurchase, Sandeep Jain. Some other sponsorships helped out with gear and supplies, But Garrett got an idea that created another speed bump. 
He thought it would be fun to take tandem bikes and offer rides on the empty seat to anybody who wanted one. Jamie loved the idea. So it was taking the tandem bicycle with an empty seat on the back of it and inviting total strangers to come on in that gesture of, of friendship and connection. And that's what the essence of Peace Fellers was. And it brought me back to that pure childhood nature that I had kind of lost as I got older and got exposed to a lot of the, the greed and, and wanting more. The tandem bike was a great idea, but there was one problem. They still wanted to hit the world's best trails on their mountain bikes. A tandem bike would be no match for the terrain. Garrick had come up with a design for what he called a tangle, a bike that would be easily converted from a tandem to a single. But nobody had ever made a convertible mountain bike frame like that before. So Jamie went to a cycling trade show with Garrick's drawings and set out to find a sponsor who could build one. Only one person was interested, a man named James Bleakley of Black Sheep Bikes in Fort Collins, Colorado. He loved the idea and he said he would build the bikes if Jamie and Garrett could secure the materials. They got a helicopter manufacturing company to donate titanium and pretty soon they had their bikes. With their bikes and sponsorships secured and with enough money in the bank to get started, in the spring of 2002, Jamie and Garrett set off on what would become the adventure of their lives. They decided to start in Japan and make their way through Asia. They didn't speak Japanese, but with a bit of miming, pointing, and nodding, they managed to do exactly what they set out to do. They became ambassadors for compassion by simply being friendly and offering foreigners rides on these bicycles built for two. They had a few brushes with trouble. Once while giving rides to a pair of Slovenian backpackers, they found themselves stuck in the Himalayas with nowhere to stay, but managed to secure food and shelter for the night through the goodwill of a local resident who opened his home to Jamie, Garrick, and their passengers. In Xi'an, China, one of their bikes was stolen. They were devastated. Locals told them that there was no chance to be able to get it back. Once again, Jamie decided to ask. Using his entrepreneurial instincts, he flooded the city with flyers, offered a reward, and somehow he managed to get his story on the front page of a local newspaper. Not long after, the chief of police invited them to dinner. He told him that he promised the police department would track down the bike, if they promised not to go to the newspaper again. Jamie and Garrett agreed to the request, but asked why. The chief said after the story appeared in the news, the department was bombarded with calls from people who wanted to help. They received so many calls that effectively shut down the department's phone system for two days. For Jamie, the incidents in China ignited the first stirrings of what soon became his credo, live big, give big. Those two situations taught him that human beings are generally a compassionate people, naturally born with the instinct to help others. It made him reconsider the entire reason for the trip itself. Was he just there for peace? Using the spirit of compassion, was there more that he could do? His whole life had been about achieving, starting companies, making money, going on adventures. What if he put all that energy into helping people who needed it? Live Big Give Big came as I started to make my way. I was about a third of the way through the journey around the world. I'd done most of Asia and Oceania, and I was moving into Africa, and I researched a lot about the African continent. And a lot of people are afraid of the African continent, and, and I came to realize that through traveling there, there's not much to, as much to fear as people thought. 
but it's very real a lot of the disparities of opportunity and income and and things going on with health and transportation and lack of opportunity on that continent so live big give big was kind of me coming to a place where i said is it possible to push the envelope of personal and professional achievement right that's what we all a lot of us especially in the west aspire for is personal goals and achievements where we're going to go next right that's the kind of the live big what can i achieve where can i go but to my hypothesis was what if i put the same level of passion towards giving as i do to achieving and what if i just push them at the same time in the same envelope and kind of try to keep them a little bit more balanced what would life look like it was a bit of a personal experiment for me it became the motto for me but it ended up resulting in some really amazing things you know great partnerships amazing projects we started to help save lives from malaria and donate bikes for transportation projects and and while i was having a really good time you know so i could do both at the same time and that was kind of the the uh, experiment and really what the example I wanted to set for humanity, whether it be just my kids or anybody else who were to, to, to observe what happened during that experiment is, you know, magical things happen when you don't, we don't just focus on ourselves, but we try to infuse some level of or some intention of contribution and purpose in our lives above and beyond just achieving. So you also mentioned a bit of the difference between your social intentions and your personal intentions. Can you talk a little bit more about how that evolved over time or do they converge? I mean, yeah, it started out where my social, my, my, my personal intentions were a lot bigger than my anything that were called a, a social intention, right? Having a, a spare seat on the back of the bike was a small gesture that I could do without having to sacrifice much on the, of, of, of my dream to travel by, by bike around the world. But as I traveled around the world and interacted with total strangers who came out of their way to help me when I was sick, when I was lost, when I was lonely, when, where I was just in trouble, like total strangers would help me out as if I was their own kid almost. And that slowly inspired me to do what I could to help them if I could help anybody in these communities that were very obviously willing to help me. So that shift of intention started to become a lot more balanced to where live big, give big finally became the motto of the journey of balance of intention for myself and my goals and my desires with a very honest and, and, and focused intention on, on contribution. So in Africa, you helped build a school and in Bolivia, you started a campaign delivering water. What did you learn from those experiences? I guess the biggest thing I learned was that that you don't have to be like a big fancy NGO to do something really cool and really impactful. Like I'm just a normal person. Like I'm not an NGO. I didn't stop riding my bike to create those projects. I kept, I kept doing what I was doing. And I just found a need that was very real from people that I got a chance to meet and touch my life. And so I just wanted to help some friends, just like anybody would help a friend. So as as I became more connected to humanity, as just human beings becoming connected to human beings, then it became a lot easier for me to, to, to genuinely want to help human beings that were suffering needlessly, right? Dying from waterborne illnesses in a community that I had touched that needed to stop. So I was able to allocate resources by just asking people to donate and finding people that knew how to build water systems and and then and getting that built. So I think a lot of it comes from that authentic desire to just be of assistance. 
I have to, have to ask you, was there anything at any point that you decided you said enough? I've, I've seen the world, you know, I've, I've lived in, in, you know, I got sick, I got my bike stolen, I've had enough. You know, did you throw your hands up and say, okay, it's time, time to go back in, into the Western world or the corporate world or, you know, what was really that drive that kept you from keep going? Well, the, I think one of the best stories, and this is found in my book, which I think people should read. It's a cool one. But in the the best story, I think, in the whole journey was I was ready to quit. I had had about, I was really tired. I missed my family. I was seven years into the journey and I had a long way to go. I was in, I was in Argentina. I had just had a bunch of bad luck in the previous country of Uruguay and was just in a bad place. Things were happening bad. People were stealing from me. They were lying to me. They weren't showing up for rides. My bike was breaking and I missed my family. I just wanted to go home. And so I was literally considering going home, but I decided to sit down and write and journal. And then I picked, I I pulled a, a two peso note from my wallet and somebody had written on the bill by hand a message. And the message in Spanish translated to English was, if love is your biggest weakness, you are the strongest person in the world. And I took the note and I was going to pay with that note for the coffee that I just bought. And I obviously didn't because I put it back in my wallet and grabbed another note and sat down with this. And I thought about it. And and I thought about how love was the real intention of this journey, you know, and that I couldn't stop. I couldn't I couldn't quit because I hadn't finished it yet. And I had lo- I'd gotten kind of lost in trying to get too far ahead of myself that I had to land in one day in the U.S. and and so I decided to to settle back into the ride and get back recommitted to it and and uh, made it through and ended up meeting my my who is now my wife only a few days later came into my life. Since returning to the U.S., Jamie had launched several successful businesses. In 2015, he published a book about his experience with peace peddlers called "A Bicycle Belt for Two Billion." One Man's Adventure Around the World in Search of Love, Compassion, and Connection. And he continues to speak about his experiences. So how did you bring that back into the Western world and back into entrepreneurship and oftentimes working with people that aren't as authentic and not as connected and are very connected digitally, but disconnected in in life and substance? So how did you take that education and bring it back into the Western world? Yeah, there's definitely a quite a culture shock coming back from, you know, a trip like this where it is more about real authentic human connection and then seeing a world that's buried buried into their cell phones and their social media accounts and and really a bit of an unauthentic world for many people, not everybody, but quite a few people, mainstream portion of society that unfortunately is living some kind of facade of of what reality and human connection and friendship is all about. And that's been created by all these different social media outlets. And so it's been interesting coming back and, and observing that. But I mean, and still am very passionate about social ventures and social entrepreneurship and and looking for ways to infuse business and and giving and set an example for others to 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 live big give big you know and that's what i'm i I think my life mission is really all about the biggest thing i learned from the trip around the world was the world's not such a scary place i mean people are people humans are humans whether you go to africa you go to asia you go to europe i mean human beings we're all part of the same family this human family and as it relates to the next 10 years 
I just think it's everybody's responsibility to pick our head up and see what we can do to help someone who's part of the human family who might not be as fortunate as us. And how did you then migrate to the your current project, Profit and Purpose? It's a part of an extension of the journey, but explain what that is all about and why that is a new dimension of, of your your vision. Sure. Well, I did take a, a detour in my entrepreneur, social entrepreneur life uh, and started a hardware startup, you know, a candle tech startup. That was a B corporation candle tech startup. Everybody told me starting a hardware startup was going to be hard, but I had no idea how hard it was going to be raising millions of dollars and going out and, and building uh, building something as complicated as a tech enabled real flame candle it was about as hard as you could possibly get it. But it was, it's, it was very difficult and used a lot of my time. And I decided when I was going to do my next venture, I sold that company. I had a successful exit and still work for that company, Ludella. But now what I see as a scalable long-term venture is really the redirecting of fixed costs that companies are spending. Right, Every single company in the entire planet relies on a certain amount of recurring expenses that they have to pay. They have to pay all their connectivity, all their, their phones, their internet, their software as a service, all these different things that everybody's using to connect and to conduct business. Those are monthly expenses that they have to spend and those that they're never going to go away. So profit and purpose was about, okay, let's stay, first of all, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, let's stay away from hardware because it is hard. I don't want to do it again. So I wanted to stay in the service space, but I wanted to stay in the, the business service space where we, there's already a big flow of resource, financial resources already being moved and just find a way to creatively redirect them, starting with purpose-driven companies, companies that are already purpose-driven. They already have giving as part of their ecosystem. All their employees already are excited about what the company's doing above and beyond making money and serving their customers. They also have a real authentic purpose to serve their communities. And Profit and Purpose is about going in and taking management and ownership of these relationships that they have with providers from cell phones to internet to software to energy light switches and and energy utilities and go in there and make sure all those vendors are willing to donate a portion of those bills to their nonprofit partners and, and, and make sure those vendor relationships are part of the ecosystem of those companies. So that we just kicked it off last year, found our first customer, and now that's what we do. We, we help anybody who is purpose-driven or wants to be purpose-driven and make it easier for them to become even more impactful in their communities. That's Jamie Bianchini. It's not lost in him that with his newest venture, Profit and Purpose, he's using the exact same model he used almost 20 years ago to secure his sponsor for Peace Peddlers. Only this time around, he's able to help other purpose-driven organizations keep a greater focus on their mission and be even more impactful in their communities. In other words, he's giving his peace peddler's motto, live big, give big, an entirely new life. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Nota Lab. <laughs>